Reading from Thomas Watson's book, first published in 1692, The Ten Commandments. Brother Watson is opening the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not kill, under the third head. The positive duty implied in the commandment is we should do all the good we can to ourselves and others. First, to others. Point six. Hard-heartedness to others in misery reproaches the gospel. When men's hearts are like pieces of rock or as the scales of the Leviathan shut up as with a close seal, you may as well extract oil out of flint as the golden oil of charity out of them. Job 41.15 They unchristianize themselves. Unmercifulness is the sin of the heathen. Romans 1.31 Unmerciful. Does it not bid us draw out thy soul to the hungry? Isaiah 58.10 These things I will that thou affirm that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Titus 3.8 While you relieve not such as are in want, you walk in opposition to the gospel. You cause it to be evil spoken of, and lay it open to the lash and censure of others. Point 7 There is nothing lost by relieving the necessitous. The Shunammite woman was kind to the prophet. She welcomed him to her house, and she received kindness from him another way. He restored her dead child to life. Second Kings 4.35 Such as are helpful to others shall find grace to help in time of need. Such as pour out the golden oil of compassion to others shall have the golden oil of salvation by God poured out to them. For a cup of cold water... They shall have rivers of pleasure. God will make it up some way or other in this life. The liberal soul shall be made fat. Proverbs 11:25. It shall be as the loaves in breaking multiplied, or as the widow's oil increased in pouring out. 1 Kings 17:16. An estate may be imparted without being impaired. Point eight: To do good to others in necessity keeps up the credit of religion. Works of mercy adorn the gospel as the fruit adorns the tree. When our light so shines that others may see our good works, it glorifies God, crowns religion, and silences the lips of the gainsayers. Basil says nothing rendered the true religion more famous in the primitive times and made more proselytes to it than the bounty and charity of Christians. Point 9. The evil that accrues by not preserving the lives of others and helping them in their necessities. God often sends a secret moth into their estate. There is that withholdeth more than is meat, but it tendeth to poverty. Proverbs 11.24 Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. Proverbs 21.13 He shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. James 2.13 The rich man denied Lazarus a crumb of bread, and the rich man was denied a drop of water to cool his parched tongue. Depart from me, ye cursed, for I was unhungered, and ye gave me no meat. Matthew 25.41 Christ says not ye took away my meat, but ye gave me no meat. Ye did not feed my members, therefore depart from me. By all this be ready to distribute to the necessities of others. This is included in the commandment, Thou shalt not kill. Not only shalt thou not destroy another's life, but thou shalt preserve it by ministering to his necessities. 
It is implied that we should endeavor to preserve the souls of others, counsel them about their souls, set life and death before them, help them to heaven. In the law, if one met his neighbor's ox or ass going astray, he must bring him back again. Exodus 23, 4. Much more, if we see our neighbor's soul going astray, we should use all means to bring him back to God by repentance. Secondly, in reference to ourselves, the commandment, Thou shalt not kill, requires that we should preserve our own life and soul. It is engraven upon every creature that he should preserve his own natural life. We must be so far from self-murder that we must do all we can to preserve natural life. We must use all means of diet, exercise, and lawful recreation, which, like oil, preserves the lamp of life from going out. Some have been tempted by Satan to believe they are such sinners that they do not deserve a bit of bread, and so they've been ready to starve themselves. This is contrary to the commandment, Thou shalt do no murder, which implies that we are to use all proper means for the preservation of life. Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake. 1 Timothy 5.23 Timothy was not by drinking too much water to overcool his stomach and weaken nature, but to use means for self-preservation, to drink a little wine, etc. This commandment requires that we should also endeavor to preserve our own souls. That is, as is said, though you lose all else, remember to save your soul. It is engraven upon every creature as with the point of a diamond to look to his own preservation. If the life of the body must be preserved, much more the life of the soul. If he who does not provide for his own house is worse than an infidel, much more he who does not provide for his own soul. 1 Timothy 5, 8 A main thing implied in the commandment, Thou shalt not kill, is a special care for preserving our souls. The soul is a jewel, a diamond set in a ring of clay. Christ puts the soul in balance with the world, and the soul outweighs all. Matthew 16:26. The soul is a mirror in which some rays of divine glory shine. It has in it some faint idea and resemblance of a deity. It is a celestial spark lighted by the breath of God. The body was made of the dust, but the soul is of a more noble origin. God breathed into man's nostrils. He became a living soul. Genesis 2.7 Firstly, the soul is excellent in its nature. It is a spiritual being. It is a kind of angelical thing. The mind sparkles with knowledge. The will is crowned with liberty. And all the affections are as stars shining in their orb. The soul, being spiritual, it is of quick operation. How quick are the motions of a spark! How swift the wing of a cherubim! So quick and agile is the motion of the soul. What is quicker than thought? How many miles can the soul travel in an instant? The soul, being spiritual, moves upwards. It contemplates God and glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? Psalm 73, 25. The motion of the soul is upward, but sin has put a wrong bias upon it, and sin has made it move downward. The soul, being spiritual, has a self-moving power. The soul can subsist and move when the body is dead, as the sailor can subsist when the ship is broken. The soul, being spiritual, is immortal, as it is said, a bud of eternity. 
Second, as the soul is excellent in its nature, so in its capacities. The soul is capable of grace. It is fit to be an associate and companion of angels. The soul is capable of communion with God, of being Christ's spouse. I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, 2. It is capable of being crowned with glory forever. Oh, then, carrying such precious souls about you, created with the breath of God, redeemed with the blood of God, what endeavors should you use for the saving of these souls? Let not the devil have your souls. The devil is called a roaring lion. Feed him not with your souls. Besides the excellence of the soul, which may make you labor to get it saved, Consider how sad it will be not to have the soul saved. It is such a loss as there is none like it, because in losing the soul you lose many things with it. A merchant in losing his ship loses many things with it. He loses money, jewels, spices, etc. So he that loses his soul loses Christ and the company of angels in heaven. It is an infinite loss, an irreparable loss. It can never be made up again. Two eyes and one soul, says Chrysostom. Oh, what care should be taken of the immortal soul? I would request but this of you, that you take as much care for the saving of your souls as you do for getting an estate. Nay, do but take as much care for saving your souls as the devil does for destroying them. Oh, how industrious is Satan to damn souls! How does he play the serpent in his subtle laying of snares to catch souls? How does he shoot the fiery darts? He's never idle. He's a busy bishop in his diocese. He walketh about seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. Now, is it not a reasonable request to take as much care for saving your souls as the devil does for destroying them? Question. How can we have our souls saved? By having them sanctified. Only the pure in heart shall see God. Get your souls inlaid and enameled with holiness. 1 Peter 1.16 It's not enough that Christians cease to do evil, which is all the evidence some have to show, and lose heaven by short shooting. But we, Christians, must be inwardly sanctified. Not only the unclean spirit must go out, but we must be filled with the Holy Ghost, Ephesians 5.18. This holiness must needs be if you consider God is to dwell with you here, and you are to dwell with Him hereafter. God is to dwell with you here. He takes up the soul as His own lodging, that Christ may dwell in your hearts, Ephesians 3.17. Therefore the soul must be consecrated. A king's palace must be kept clean, especially his presence chamber. The body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, 1 Corinthians 6.19. The soul, how holy should it be? You are to dwell with God. Heaven is a holy place, an inheritance undefiled, 1 Peter 1.4. And how can you dwell with God till you are sanctified? We do not put wine into a musty vessel, and God will not put the new wine of glory into a sinful heart. Oh, then, as you love your souls and would have them saved eternally, endeavor after holiness. By this means you will have a fitness for the kingdom of heaven, and your souls will be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Chapter 7, the Seventh Commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Exodus 20, 
14. God is a pure Holy Spirit and has an infinite antipathy against all uncleanness. In this commandment he has entered his caution against it, Thou shalt not commit adultery. The sum of this commandment is the preservation of bodily purity. We must take heed of running on the rock of uncleanness, and so making shipwreck of our chastity. In this commandment there is something tacitly implied and something expressly forbidden. Point one, the thing implied is that the ordinance of marriage should be observed. Let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. 1 Corinthians 7.2 Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. Hebrews 13.4 God instituted marriage in paradise. He brought the woman to the man. Genesis 2.22 He gave them to each other in marriage. Jesus Christ honored marriage with His presence. John 2.2 2. The first miracle He wrought was at a marriage, when He turned the water into wine. Marriage is a type and resemblance of the mystical union between Christ and His church. Ephesians 5.32 In marriage there are general and special duties. The general duty of the husband is to rule. The husband is head of the wife. Ephesians 5.23 The head is the seat of rule and judgment. But the husband must rule with discretion. He is head, therefore must not rule without reason. The general duty on the wife's part is submission. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Ephesians 5.22 It is observable that the Holy Ghost passed by Sarah's failings, not mentioning her unbelief, but he takes notice of that which is good in her as her reverence and obedience to Abraham. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. 1 Peter 3.6 The special duties belonging to marriage are Love and fidelity. Love is the marriage of the affections, Ephesians 5.25. There is, as it were, but one heart in two bodies. Love lines the yoke and makes it easy. It perfumes the marriage relation, and without love there is not harmony, but constant wrangling. Like two poisons in one stomach, one is ever sick of the other. In marriage there is mutual promise of living together faithfully according to God's holy ordinance. Among the Romans on the day of marriage, the woman presented to her husband fire and water, signifying that as fire refines and water cleanses, she would live with her husband in chastity and sincerity. Point two, the thing forbidden in the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, is infecting ourselves with bodily pollution and uncleanness. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The fountain of this sin is lust. Since the fall, holy love has degenerated to lust. Lust is the fever of the soul. There is a twofold adultery, firstly mental, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart Matthew 5:28 As a man may die of an inward bleeding so he may be damned for the inward boilings of lust if it be not mortified secondly corporal as when sin has conceived and brought forth in the act this is expressly forbidden under a subpoena thou shalt not commit adultery this commandment is set as a hedge to keep out uncleanness. 
and they that break this hedge a serpent shall bite them. Job calls adultery a heinous crime, Job 31.11. Every failing is not a crime, and every crime is not a heinous crime, but adultery is a heinous crime. The Lord calls it villainy. They have committed villainy in Israel and have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives. Jeremiah 29.23 Question. Wherein appears the greatness of this sin? First, it is a breach of the marriage oath. When persons come together in a matrimonial way, they bind themselves by covenant to each other in the presence of God to be true and faithful in the conjugal relation. Unchastity falsifies this solemn oath, and herein adultery is worse than fornication because it is a breach of the conjugal bond. Second, the greatness of the sin lies in this, that it is a great dishonor done to God. God says thou shalt not commit adultery. The adulterer sets his will above God's law, tramples upon his command, affronts him to his face, as if a subject should tear his prince's proclamation. The adulterer is highly injurious to all the persons of the Trinity, to God the Father. Sinner, God has given thee thy life, and dost thou waste the lamp of life, the flower of thine age, in lewdness? He has bestowed on thee many mercies, health, and estate, and thou spendest all on harlots? Did God give thee wages to serve the devil? It is injurious to God the Son in two ways. As he has purchased thee with his blood, ye are bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 Now he who is bought is not his own. It is a sin for him to go to another without consent from Christ, who has bought him with a price. As by virtue of baptism thou art a Christian, and professest that Christ is thy head, and thou art a member of Christ... Therefore, what an injury it is to Christ to take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot. 1 Corinthians 6.15 It is injurious to God the Holy Ghost, for the body is His temple. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19 And how great a sin is it to defile His temple. Third, the sin of adultery lies in this that it is committed with mature deliberation. There is contriving the sin in the mind, then consent in the will, and then the sin is put forth into act. To sin against the light of nature, and to sin deliberately, is like the dye to the wool. It gives sin a tincture and dyes it of a crimson color. Fourth, that which makes adultery so sinful is that it is needless. God has provided a remedy to prevent it. To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 Therefore, after this remedy prescribed, to be guilty of fornication or adultery is inexcusable. It is like a rich thief that steals when he has no need. This increases the sin. Use 1 the Church of Rome is here condemned, which allows the sin of fornication and adultery. It suffers not its priests to marry, but they may have their courtesans. The worst kind of uncleanness, incest with the near kin, is dispensed of for money. It was once said of Rome, 
Rome was become a common stew, and no wonder when the Pope, for a sum of money, could give a license and patent to commit uncleanness, and if the patent were not enough, he would give them a pardon. Many of the papists judge fornication to be a venial sin. God condemns the very lusting. Matthew 5.28, if God condemns the thought, how dare they allow the fact of fornication? You see what a cage of unclean birds the Church of Rome is. They call themselves the Holy Catholic Church, but how can they be holy who are so steeped and parboiled in fornication, incest, sodomy, and all manner of uncleanness? Use too. It is a matter for lamentation to see this commandment so slighted and violated among us. Adultery is the reigning sin of the times. They are all adulterers, and an oven heated by the baker, Hosea 7, 4. The time of King Henry VIII was called the Golden Age, but this may be called the Unclean Age, wherein whore-hunting is common. In thy filthiness is lewdness, Ezekiel 24, 13. Luther tells us of one who said, if he might but satisfy his lust and be carried from one whorehouse to another, he would desire no other heaven and who afterwards breathed out his soul betwixt two notorious trumpets. This is to love forbidden fruit, to love to drink of stolen waters. Son of man, dig in the wall. And when I had digged, behold a door, and he said, Go in, and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. Ezekiel 8, 8 and 9. Could we, as the prophet, dig in the walls of many houses? What vile abominations should we see there? In some chambers we might see fornication, dig further, and we may see adultery, dig further, change the channel, and we may see incest, etc. And may not the Lord go from his sanctuary? Seest thou the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth, that I should go far off from my sanctuary? Ezekiel 8, 6. God might remove his gospel, and then we might write Ichabod on this nation, the glory is departed. Let us mourn for what we cannot reform. Use three for exhortation to keep ourselves from the sin of adultery. Let every man have his own wife, says Paul, not his concubine, nor his mistress, his courtesan, 1 Corinthians 7, 2, that I may deter you from adultery. Let me show you the great evil of it. First, it is a thievish sin. It is the highest sort of theft. The adulterer steals from his neighbor that which is more than his goods and estate. He steals away his wife from him, who is flesh of his flesh. Second, adultery debases a person. It makes him resemble the beasts. Therefore, the adulterer is described like a horse neighing. In Jeremiah 5, verse 8, everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. Nay, it is worse than brutish. For some creatures that are void of reason, yet by the instinct of nature observe some decorum and chastity, the turtle dove is a chaste creature, and keeps to its mate, and the stork, wherever he flies, comes into no nest but his own. Naturalists write that if a stork, leaving his own mate, joins with any other, all the rest of the storks fall upon it and pull its feathers from it. Adultery is worse than animalistic. It degrades a person of his honor. Third, adultery pollutes. The devil is called an unclean spirit, Luke 11:24. Uh, 
The adulterer is the devil's firstborn. He is unclean. He is a moving quagmire. He is all over ulcerated with sin. His eyes sparkle with lust. His mouth foams out filth. His heart burns like a volcano in unclean desires. And he is so filthy that if he die in this sin of adultery, all the flames of hell will never purge away his uncleanness. And as for the adulteress, who can paint her black enough? The scriptures call her a deep ditch. Proverbs 23:27. She's a common sewer. Whereas a believer's body is a living temple and his soul a little heaven bespangled with the graces, as so many stars, the body of a harlot is a walking dunghill and her soul a lower hell. Fourth, adultery is destructive to the body. And thou mourn at the last, Proverbs 5.11, when thy flesh and thy body are consumed. Adultery brings into consumption. Uncleanness turns the body into a hospital. It wastes the radical moisture, rots the skull, and eats the beauty of the face. As the flame wastes the candle, so the fire of lust consumes the bones. The adulterer hastens his own death till a dart strike through his liver, Proverbs 7.23. The Romans had their funerals at the gate of Venus Temple to signify that lust brings death. Venus, the goddess of lust. Fifthly, adultery is a drain upon the purse. It wastes not the body only, but the estate. By means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread. Proverbs 6.26 Whores are the devil's horse-leeches, sponges that suck in money. The prodigal soon spent his portion when he fell among harlots. Luke 15.30 The concubine of King Edward III, when he was dying, got all she could from him, even plucking the rings off his fingers, and so left him to die. He that lives in luxury dies in beggary. Sixth, adultery destroys reputation. Whoso committeth adultery with a woman, a wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. Proverbs 6, 32 and 33. Some, when they get wounds, get honor. The soldier's wounds are full of honor. The martyr's wounds for Christ are full of honor. But the adulterer gets wounds, but no honor to his name. His reproach shall not be wiped away. Wounds of reputation no physician can heal, adulterer's wounds. When the adulterer dies, his shame lives. When his body rots under the ground, his name rots above ground. His base-born children are living monuments of his shame. Seventh, this sin of adultery impairs the mind. It steals away the understanding. It stupefies the heart. Whoredom and wine take away the heart, Hosea 4.11. It eats out all heart for good. Solomon besotted himself with women, and they enticed him to idolatry. Point 8. This sin incurs temporal judgments. This sin incurs temporal judgments. The Mosaic Law made adultery death. The adulterer and adulteress shall surely be put to death. And the usual death was stoning. Leviticus 20, verse 10. Deuteronomy 22, verse 24. 
The Saxons commanded persons taken in this sin to be burned. The Romans caused their heads to be stricken off. Like a scorpion, this sin carries a sting in its tail. The adultery of Paris and Helen was the death of both and the ruin of the city of Troy. Jealousy is the rage of a man, Proverbs 6:34. The adulterer is often killed in the act of his sin. Adultery cost Otho the emperor and Pope Sixtus IV their lives. It is said lust's practice is to make a joyful entrance, but she leaves in misery. I have read of two citizens in London in 1583 who, having defiled themselves with adultery on the Lord's Day, were immediately struck dead with fire from heaven. If all who are now guilty of this sin were to be punished in this manner, it would rain fire again as on Sodom. Ninth, adultery without repentance damns the soul. Neither fornicators nor adulterers nor effeminate shall enter into the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 The fire of lust brings to the fire of hell. Whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Hebrews 13, 4 Though men may neglect to judge them, yet God will judge them. But will not God judge all other sinners? Yes. Why then does the apostle say, Whoremongers and adulterers God will judge? The meaning is, He will judge them assuredly. They shall not escape the hand of justice, and He will punish them severely. The Lord knoweth how to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished, but chiefly them that walk in the lust of uncleanness. 2 Peter 2, 9 and 10 The harlot's breast keeps from Abraham's bosom, as it is said, The delight lasts a moment, the torment an eternity. Who for a cup of pleasure would drink a sea of wrath? Her guests are in the depths of hell. Proverbs 9, 18 A wise traveler, though many pleasant dishes are set before him at the inn, forbears to taste because of the reckoning. We are all travelers to Jerusalem above, and when many baits of temptation are set before Christians, we should refrain and think of the reckoning, the paying of the bill will be brought in at death. With what stomach could Dionysius eat his dainties when he imagined there was a naked sword hung over his head as he sat at meat? While the adulterer feeds on strange flesh, the sword of God's justice hangs over his head. Causinius speaks of a tree growing in Spain that is of a sweet smell and pleasant to the taste, but the juice of it is poisonous. This is an emblem of a harlot who is perfumed with powders and fair to look on, but poisonous and damnable to the soul. She hath cast down many wounded, yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Proverbs 7.26 The adulterer not only wrongs his own soul, but does what in him lies to destroy the soul of another, and so kills two at once. He is worse than the thief, for suppose a thief robs a man, yea, takes away his life, the man's soul may be happy. He may go to heaven as well as if he had died in his bed, but he who commits adultery endangers the soul of another and deprives him or her of salvation so far as in him lies. Now what a fearful thing is it to be an instrument to draw another to hell. Eleventh, 
The adulterer is hated of God. The mouth of strange women is a deep pit. He that is abhorred of the Lord shall fall therein. Proverbs 22:14. What can be worse than to be abhorred of God? God may be angry with his own children, but for God to hate a man is the highest degree of hatred. Question, how does the Lord show his hatred of the adulterer? In giving him up to a reprobate mind and a seared conscience, Romans chapter 1. He is then in such a condition that he cannot repent. He is abhorred of God. He stands upon the threshold of hell, and when death gives him a push, he tumbles in. All this should sound a retreat in our ears and call us off from the pursuit of so damnable a sin as uncleanness. Hear what the scriptures say. Come not nigh the door of her house. Proverbs 5.8 Her house is the way to hell. Proverbs 7.27 Twelfth, adultery sows discord. It destroys peace and love, the two best flowers that can grow in a family. It sets husband against wife and wife against husband, and so causes the joints of the same body to smite one against another. This division of a family works confusion, for a house divided against a house falleth. Luke 11:17. Use 4. I shall give some directions by way of antidote to keep from this infection of sin. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Firstly, come not into the company of a whorish woman. Avoid her house as a seaman does a rock. Come not nigh the door of her house. Proverbs 5.8 He who would not have the plague must not come near the infected house. Every whorehouse has the plague in it. Not to beware of the occasion of sin, and yet pray, lead us not into temptation, is as if one should put his finger into the candle, and yet pray that it may not be burnt. Secondly, look to your eyes. Much sin comes in by the eye, having eyes full of adultery. Second Peter 2.14 The eye tempts the fancy, and the fancy works upon the heart. A wanton, amorous eye may usher in sin. Eve first saw the tree of knowledge, and then she took Genesis 3.6. First she looked, and then she loved. The eye often sets the heart on fire. Therefore Job laid a law upon his eyes. I made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Job 31.1. Democritus, the philosopher, plucked out his eyes because he would not be tempted with vain objects. The scripture does not bid us do this, but to set a watch before our eyes. Thirdly, look to your lips. Take heed of any unseemly word that may enkindle unclean thoughts in yourselves or others. Evil communications corrupt good manners. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Impure discourse is the bellows to blow up the fires of lust. Much evil is conveyed to the heart by the tongue. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Psalm 141, verse 3. Look in a special manner to your heart. Keep thy heart with all diligence. Fourthly, Proverbs 4.23 Everyone has a tempter in his own bosom. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Matthew 15.19 Thinking of sin makes way for the act of sin. Suppress the first risings of sin in your heart. 
As the serpent, when danger is near, keeps its head, so keep your heart, which is the spring from whence all lustful motions proceed. Fifthly, look to your dress, your attire. We read of the attire of a harlot, Proverbs 7:10. A wanton dress is a provocation to lust. Curlings and braidings of the hair, a painted face, naked breasts are allurements to vanity. Where the sign is hung out, people will go in and taste. Jerome says they who by their lascivious dress endeavor to draw others to lust, though no evil follows, are tempters, and tempters shall be punished because they offered the poison to others, though they would not drink. Sixthly, take heed of evil company, as it is said, vices spread abroad and spring on to any standing by. Seneca says, Sin is a very catching disease. One tempts another to sin and hardens him in it. There are three cords that draw men to adultery, the inclination of the heart, the persuasion of evil company, and the embraces of the harlot. And this threefold cord is not easily broken. A fire was kindled in their company, Psalm 106.18. The fire of lust is kindled in bad company. Seventhly, beware of going to plays. A playhouse is often a preface to a whorehouse. Plays, it is said, furnish the seeds of wickedness. We are bid to avoid all appearance of evil, and are not plays the appearance of evil? Such sights there are that are not fit to be beheld with chaste eyes. Both fathers and councils have shown their dislike to going to plays. A learned divine observes that many have on their deathbeds confessed with tears that the pollution of their bodies has been occasioned by going to the theater. Eighthly, take heed of mixed dancing. It is said dances are instruments to wantonness. From mixed dancing people come to dalliance one with another and from dalliance to uncleanness. There is, says Calvin, for the most part some unchaste behavior in dancing. Dances draw the heart to folly by wanton gestures, by unchaste touches, and by lustful looks. Chrysostrum invade against mixed dancing in his time. We read, he says, of a marriage feast and of virgins going before with lamps, but of dancing there we read not in Matthew 25. Many have been ensnared by dancing, as the Duke of Normandy and others, as it is said, dancing is the province not of the chaste woman, but of the adulteress. Chrysostrum says where dancing is, there the devil is. I speak chiefly of mixed dancing. We read of dances in Scripture, but they were sober and modest. Exodus 15. They were not mixed dances, but pious and religious, being usually accompanied with singing praises to God. Ninthly, take heed of a lascivious books and pictures that provoke to lust. As the reading of the scriptures stirs up love to God, so reading bad books stirs up the mind to wickedness. I could name one who published a book to the world full of effeminate, amorous, and wanton expressions, who before he died was much troubled for it, and burned the book which made so many burn in lust. 
To lascivious books I may add lascivious pictures, which bewitch the eye, and are incendiaries to lust. Such books secretly convey poison to the heart. Popish pictures are not more prone to stir up idolatry than unclean pictures are to stir up concupiscence. Tenthly, take heed of excess in diet. When gluttony and drunkenness lead the van, chambering and wantonness bring up the rear. As it is said, any wine inflames lust, and the fullness of bread is made the cause of Sodom's uncleanness. Ezekiel 16.49 The rankest weeds grow out of the fattest soil. Uncleanness proceeds from excess. When I had fed them to the full, everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife, Jeremiah 5, 8. Get the golden bridle of temperance. God allows recruits of nature, and what may fit us the better for his service, but beware of surfeiting. Excess in the creature clouds the mind, chokes good affections, and provokes lust. Paul did keep under his body, 1 Corinthians 9:27. The flesh pampered is apt to rebel, as it is said. Eleventhly, take heed of idleness. When a man is out of a calling, he is ready to receive any temptation. We do not sow seed in fallow ground, but the devil sows most seed of temptation in such as lie fallow. Idleness is the cause of sodomy and uncleanness. Ezekiel 16.49 When David was idle on the top of his house, he espied Bathsheba and took her to him. 2 Samuel 11.4 Jerome gave his friend counsel to be always well employed in God's vineyard, that when the devil came, he might have no leisure to listen to temptation. Twelfthly, to avoid fornication and adultery, let every man have a chaste, entire love to his own wife. Ezekiel's wife was the desire of his eyes, chapter 24:16. When Solomon had dissuaded from strange women, he prescribed a remedy against it. Rejoice with the wife of thy youth, Proverbs 5:18. It is not having a wife, but loving a wife that makes a man live chastely. He who loves his wife, whom Solomon calls his fountain, will not go abroad and drink of muddy, poisoned waters. Pure, conjugal love is a gift of God and comes from heaven, but, like the vestal fire, it must be cherished that it not go out. He who loves not his wife is the likeliest person to embrace the bosom of a stranger. Thirteenth, labor to get the fear of God into your hearts. By the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. Proverbs 16:6. 6, As the embankment keeps out the water, so the fear of the Lord keeps out uncleanness. Such as lack the fear of God, lack the bridle that should check them from sin. How did Joseph keep from his mistress's temptation? The fear of God pulled him back from Potiphar's wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Genesis 39, 9. Bernard calls holy fear the doorkeeper of the soul. As a nobleman's porter stands at the door and keeps out vagrants, so the fear of God stands and keeps out all sinful temptations from entering. Fourteenth, take delight in the word of God. 
How sweet are thy words unto my taste. Psalm 119.103 Chrysostom compares God's words to a garden. If we walk in this garden and suck sweetness from the flowers of the promises, we shall never care to pluck the forbidden fruit, as it is said, Let the scriptures be my pure pleasure. Augustine the reason why persons seek after unchaste, sinful pleasures is because they have no better. Caesar riding through a city and seeing women play with dogs and parrots said, Sure, they have no children. So they that sport with harlots have no better pleasures. He that has once tasted Christ in a promise is ravished with delight. And how would he scorn a motion to sin? Job said the word was his appointed food. Job 23.12 No wonder then he made a covenant with his eyes. Fifteenthly, if you would abstain from adultery, use serious consideration. Consider, one, God sees thee in the act of sin. He sees all thy curtain wickedness. He is all-seeing. The clouds are no canopy. The night is no curtain to hide you from God's eye. You cannot sin, but your judge is looking on. I have seen thy adulteries and thy nayings, Jeremiah 13:27. They have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives, even I know, and am a witness, saith the Lord, Jeremiah 29:23. Secondly, few that are entangled in the sin of adultery recovery from the snare. None that go to her return again, Proverbs 2:19. This made some of the ancients conclude that adultery was the unpardonable sin, but it is not so. David repented. Mary Magdalene was a weeping penitent. Upon her amorous eyes that before sparkled with lust, she sought to be revenged by washing Christ's feet with her tears. Some therefore have recovered from the snare of adultery. None that go to her return, that is very few, it is rare to hear of any who are enchanted and bewitched with the sin of adultery that recover from it. Her heart is snares and nets, and her hands are bands, Ecclesiastes 7.26. Her heart is snares, that is, she is subtle to deceive those who come to her, and her hands are bands, that is, her embraces are powerful to hold and entangle her lovers. Plutarch said of the Persian kings, they were captives to their concubines. They were so inflamed that they had no power to leave their company. This consideration should make all fearful of this sin. Soft pleasures harden the heart. Thirdly, consider what Scripture says, which may lay a bar in the way to this sin. I will be a swift witness against the adulterers, Malachi 3.5. It is good when God is a witness for us, when he witnesses to our sincerity as he did to Job's, but it is sad to have God a witness against us. I, saith the Lord, will be a witness against the adulterer, and who shall disprove his witness? He is both witness and judge. Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Hebrews 13:4. Fourthly, consider the sad farewell the sin of adultery leaves. It leaves a hell in the conscience. The lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, but her end is bitter as wormwood. Proverbs 5, 4. The goddess Diana was so artificially drawn that she seemed to smile upon those that came into her temple, but frown on those that went out. 
So the harlot smiles on her lovers as they come to her, but at last come the frown and the sting till a dart strike through his liver. Proverbs 7.23 Her end is bitter. When a man has been virtuous, the labor is gone, but the comfort remains. But when he has been vicious and unclean, the pleasure is gone, but the sting remains. As it is said, he gains momentary pleasure and then eternal torment. When the senses have been feasted with unchaste pleasures, the soul is left to pay the reckoning. Stolen waters are sweet, but as poison, though sweet in the mouth, it torments the bowels. Sin always ends in a tragedy. Memorable is that which Fincellus reports of a priest in Flanders who enticed a maid to uncleanness. She objected how vile a sin it was. He told her that by authority from the Pope he could commit any sin, so that at last he drew her to his wicked purpose. But when they had been together a while, in came the devil and took away the harlot from the priest's side, and notwithstanding all her crying out, carried her away. If the devil should come and carry away all that are guilty of bodily uncleanness in this nation, I fear more would be carried away than would be left behind. Sixteenth, pray against this sin. Luther gave a lady this advice, that when any lust began to rise in her heart, she should go immediately to prayer. Prayer is the best armor of proof, the weapon of all prayer, Ephesians chapter 6. It quenches the wild fire of lust. If prayer will cast out the devil, why may it not cast out those lusts that come from the devil into your heart? Use 5. If the body must be kept pure from defilement, much more the soul of a Christian must be kept pure. The meaning of the commandment is not only that we should not stain our bodies with adultery, but that we should keep our souls pure. To have a chaste body but an unclean soul is like a fair face with bad lungs or a gilt chimney piece that is all soot within. Be ye holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1.16 The soul cannot be lovely to God, till it has Christ's image stamped upon it, which consists in righteousness and true holiness. Ephesians 4.24 The soul must especially be kept pure, because it is the chief place of God's residence. Ephesians 3.17 A king's palace must be kept clean, especially his presence chamber. If the body is the temple, the soul is the holy of holies, and must be consecrated. We must not only keep our bodies from carnal pollution, but our souls from envy and malice. Question, how shall we know our souls are pure? Firstly, if our souls are pure, we flee from the appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 We shall not do that which looks like sin. When Joseph's mistress courted and tempted him, he left his garment in her hand and fled. Genesis 39.12 It was suspicious to be near her. Polycarp would not be seen in company with Marcion the heretic because it would not be good report. Secondly, if our souls are pure, the light of purity will shine forth. Aaron had holiness to the Lord written upon his golden plate. 
Where there is sanctity in the soul, there holiness to the Lord is engraven upon the life. We are adorned with patience, humility, good works, and shine as lights in the world. Philippians 2.15 Carry Christ's picture in your conversation. 1 John 2.6 Oh, let us labor for this soul purity. Without soul purity there is no seeing God. Hebrews 12.14 What communion hath light with darkness? 2 Corinthians 6.14 To keep the soul pure have recourse to the blood of Christ, which is the fountain open for sin and uncleanness. Zechariah 13.1 A soul steeped in the briny tears of repentance and bathed in the blood of Christ is made pure. Pray, Christian, pray much for a pureness of soul. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Psalm 51.10 Some pray for children, others for riches, but pray thou for soul purity. Say, Lord, though my body is kept pure, yet my soul is defiled. I pollute all I touch. O purge me with hyssop. Let Christ's blood sprinkle me. Let the Holy Ghost come upon me and anoint me. O make me evangelically pure, that I may be translated to heaven and placed among the cherubims, where I shall be as holy as thou wilt have me to be, and as happy as I can desire to be. Continuing in our book, The Ten Commandments, by Thomas Watson, the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal, Exodus twenty, fifteen. As the holiness of God sets him against uncleanness in the command, Thou shalt not commit adultery, so the justice of God sets him against rapine and robbery in the command, Thou shalt not steal. The thing forbidden in this commandment is meddling with another man's property. The civil lawyers define furtum, stealth, or theft to be the laying hands unjustly on that which is another's, the invading of another's right. Firstly, the causes of theft. Number one, the internal causes are, firstly, unbelief. A man has a high distrust of God's providence. Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Psalm 78:19. Can God spread a table for me, says the unbeliever? No, he cannot. Therefore he is resolved he will spread a table for himself. But it shall be at another man's cost. And both first and second course shall be served in with stolen goods. Secondly, covetousness. The Greek word for covetousness signifies an immoderate desire of getting, which is the root of theft. A man covets more than his own, and this itch of covetousness makes him steal the wedge of gold to scratch what he can from another, as Achan's covetous humor made him steal that wedge of gold, a wedge which cleaved asunder his soul from God, Joshua 7:21. Secondly, the external cause of theft is Satan's solicitation. Judas Iscariot was a thief, John 12:6. How came he to be a thief? Satan entered into him, John 13:27. The devil is the great master thief. He robbed us of our coat of innocence, and he persuades men to take up his trade. He tells men how bravely they shall live by thieving, and how they may catch an estate. As Eve listened to the serpent's voice, so do thieves. As birds of prey, thieves live upon spoil and plunder. Secondly, the kinds of theft. Firstly, there is stealing from God. They are 
thieves who rob God of any part of his day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Not a part of the day only, but the whole day must be dedicated to God. And lest any should forget this, the Lord has prefixed a memento. Remember the Sabbath day. Therefore, after morning sacrifice to spend the other part of the Sabbath in vanity and pleasure is spiritual theft. You are robbing God of his due, and the very heathen will rise up in judgment against such Christians. For the heathen, as one notes, observe a whole day to their false gods. Secondly, there is stealing from others, a stealing away souls as heretics by robbing men of the truth, robbing them of their souls, stealing money and goods. There is the highway thief who takes a purse, contrary to the letter of the commandment, thou shalt not rob thy neighbor. Leviticus 29.13, do not steal. Mark 10.19, this is not the violence which takes the kingdom of heaven by force. Matthew 11.12, the house thief who steals and filches out of his employer's cash or steals his wares. The apostle said, some have entertained angels unawares. Hebrews 13.2, but many masters have entertained thieves in their houses unawares. The house thief is a hypocrite as well as a thief, for he has demure looks and pretends to be helping his employer when he only helps himself. Thirdly, the thief that shrouds himself under law as the unjust lawyer, attorney, barrister who prevaricates and deals falsely with his client. This is to steal from the client. By deceit and prevarication, the lawyer robs his client of his land and may be the means of ruining his family and is no better than a thief in God's account. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, 
they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.